Part three of Dialogue Between a Methodist and a Churchman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Dialogue Between a Methodist and a Churchman by William Law. The Methodist read by David Barnes. The Churchman read by Kirsten Ferreri. Part three. If you do not like my friend's expression, take the same truth in other words of some most excellent divines. Thus says one, Nothing is required in order to our participation of Christ and his benefits. There is no clogging qualification, no worth to be possessed, no duty to be performed, in order to our full participation of Christ and all his riches. For all which he gives this solid reason, because it is not a matter of bargain, nor the subject of sale, but a deed of gift, the gift of righteousness, and gifts, we all know, are not to be purchased, but received. As wild and extravagant words as ever met together, as may thus be fully shown. Christ said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life and that they may fully understand the true meaning of that, he said also, Straight is the gate, and narrow the way that leadeth to life. Now, what Christ here saith of the straight gate and narrow way is strictly so much said of himself, and how he is the Saviour of the world, for the way and gate could not lead to life if they meant anything else but Christ himself. Now Christ and his benefits, considered as the blessed straight gate and narrow way to life provided by God, is wholly and solely the free grace and gift of God. Here was no bargain or sale of anything. Nothing was done on man's part to obtain it, and that for this very good reason, because Christ was thus given by God before the foundation of the world, and again before there was a man born of a woman. See, then, the miserable delusion of your doctors, who, from this scripture truth that God has freely and out of mere mercy to the fallen state of man provided, and given a blessed narrow way and straight gate to eternal life, thence conclude that no pains or trouble of striving to get into this narrow way, and through this straight gate, need be taken, note well, because, without any pains of our own, he freely gave it to all mankind, though there could be no blessedness in the gift, but because blessed are they who, with all their powers, works, and endeavors of spirit, soul, and body, strive to walk in this narrow way, and pass through this straight gate. Is not all this as gross a delusion, and in as full contrariety to the nature of the thing, as to conclude that because God has freely prepared and given us a cup of salvation, therefore there is no need that we should drink it? Or think that our own drinking it need not be added to make his free cup of salvation a benefit to us? Now, gross as all this is, it is the strong foundation— absurdity, on which alone your great divines build all their rhetorical flourishes of a salvation that is wholly the gift of God, without any works of man belonging to it. For they have not a word to say against salvation works, but that works did not produce God's first free gift of a Saviour to us, and therefore works can no more belong to this free gift of a Saviour after he is given than they did before he was given to us, 
being too systematically blind to see that, as a straight gate and narrow way were only given to us, we might do that which we could not do before they were given, or, as the cup of salvation is only given, that we may drink that which we could not drink before it was given. So Christ was only and solely given for the sake of salvation works, which we could not do, till in him and by him we became new creatures, created again unto good works." How easily may you now see the vanity of these, and such like flourishing words! The gift of the great eternal sovereign are intended not to recognize our imaginary worth, but to aggrandize our views of his mercy and grace. Just as full of scripture truth and good sense as to say that God's gift of five and ten talents are not given us with this intention that our good use of them may appear, and that God may have occasion to say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant, but to show us how great are the talents and riches of God. Or again, that God's gift of a straight gate and narrow way to life is not given us that our well-striving in it may appear, but only that the greatness of God's goodness to us may be shown thereby. See again what the same writer says of the man who is in the truth of the gospel. He labors neither first nor last to acquire any requisite to justification. When Christ himself has told him, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Surely this is enough telling him that from first to last nothing but works have either justification or condemnation in them. See again what another of your excellent divines saith. Do not think by any preparatory works to make yourselves worthy of Christ. What is this saying but do not believe Christ when he is speaking of worthiness and unworthiness, when he says, He that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Do not believe St. Paul when he exhorteth the Thessalonians to walk worthy of God who hath called them to his kingdom and glory. Again, have a care of these words of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For you may easily thereby be led to think that repentance works have some kind of worthy preparation in them, to make you fit for the kingdom of God. And now let me tell you that two or three old heresies joined together would not more abuse and contradict the gospel than your three doctrines, one of faith without works, two of a righteousness of Christ only outwardly imputed to us, and three of absolute election and reprobation. These are the scandal and reproach of the Reformation, wherever they are found, and have nothing to support them but that implicit adherence and systematic obstinacy which keeps Romish scholars steady to a Trent creed. Gospel salvation is, on God's part, a covenant of free grace and mercy, and cannot possibly be anything else. On a man's part, it is wholly a covenant of works, and cannot possibly be anything else. For the sake of works, man was that which he was by his creation. For the sake of works, he is all that he is by his redemption. Works are the life of the creature, and he can have no life better or worse than his works. That which he does, that he is. This do and thou shalt live is the law of works, which was from the beginning, is now, and always will be the one law of life. And when you consider the Adamical, patriarchal, legal, prophetic, or gospel state of the church, doing is all. Nothing makes any change in this. Nay, it is not only the one law of all men on earth, but of all angels in heaven. And this as certainly as our best and highest prayer is this, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This do and thou shalt live was the only law of life given to Adam in paradise. Adam could not have been capable of this law, but because the divine nature, or a birth of Christ within him, was his first created state, 
No law of doing God's will could have been given to or received by any of his posterity, but because a seed of the first divine life or Christ in man was, by God's free grace and mercy, preserved and continued in Adam, and secured to all his posterity as a redeeming seed of the woman, which through all ages of the church should continue bruising the head of the serpent, till this first seed of life became God incarnate, with all power in heaven and on earth, to restore original righteousness, and to raise again in fallen man that first birth of himself, which was in Adam before he fell. This was the one power that he gave them to become sons of God. Nothing more need be said against all your doctrine, but that it is direct Arminianism. Do you think, then, that no more need be said in defense of your doctrine than that it is true Calvinism? I have appealed to nothing for what I have asserted, but to the words of Christ and his apostles, and would no more consult a Calvin, an Arminius, or a Zinzendorf how I was to understand them, than I would pray to God to be led by their spirit instead of the spirit of Christ. Nor is the one a whit better or worse than the other. Christ said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And again, He that is of God, heareth God's words. If therefore you want hearing ears, or are not of God, to consult a grammarian how you are to understand the words of Christ, is as sure a way as you can take to be content with spiritual deafness and blindness, and never to be taught of God so long as you live. If I have called the law of works the one law of life, it is because Christ hath said the same to the lawyer who asked him what he should do to inherit eternal life. Christ asked him what is written in the law. He answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, spirit, and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. To which Christ saith, Thou hast answered right, it's do, and thou shalt live. Here you have just the same thing said of works as is said of faith. The just shall live by faith. Therefore you can have no fuller proof given you than faith and works mean but one and the same thing, whenever life is sometimes ascribed to one and sometimes to the other, and therefore faith and works can no more be two things than eternal life can be two things. Again, hear how St. Paul asserteth the law of works to be the one law of life. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, if you have your senses so exercised to discern between good and evil, as to think that the law of works asserted by Christ and his apostle to be the law of life, is fitter to be received or not received, just as a Calvin or an Arminius are with it or against it, where must you look for the people who have eyes and see not, ears and hear not? I am quite tired with disputing in this manner, but yet will add one thing, which you will not be so able to puzzle as you have the scripture, and which must be acknowledged to be decisive, at least with regard to our awakening preacher. He heard a voice, as he really thought, from heaven, saying unto him, Cease from thine own works. Whencesoever the voice came, it spoke well, and might have been just as beneficial to him as if it had said, Cease from thine own wisdom, thine own faith, or thine own projects in religion. For these are not only alike, but the very same thing. But if he took an advice to cease from his own works, to be an advice to cease from works that were not his own, it is much to be feared he misunderstood his adviser. If the voice had said, Cease from thine own faith, would he have taken this to be a sufficient divine authority to call the Christian world to a religion of works without faith, and to have told them of the damnable doctrine of adding faith to works? Yet this would be full as well as to preach against good works as having no salvation, goodness in them, because he was bid to cease from his own works. 
If you knew a minister so full of experience from his own works as to be quite uneasy at their insignificancy for many years, both with regard to himself and his hearers, such a man might well be said to have his eye too much upon his own works, to mistake the nature of them, and to expect that from them which can only be done by quite another power. To such a man as this, how wholesome would the advice be, Cease from thine own works, and why so? Because thou canst neither be thine own saviour, nor the saviour of them that hear thee, by anything that can be called thine own works. If, therefore, your fruitless preacher, instead of making a division between faith and works, in order to preach with divine success, had said to himself and his hearers, We have hitherto lived and laboured in vain, because, as the prophet speaks, we have committed two evils. We have forsaken the fountain of living water, and hewed out to ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, when or how may we be said to have forsaken the fountain of living water? It is when we expect or seek for good in anything but that which God is and does by His own word, light, and spirit within us. Look after anything but this. Have any trust in or dependence upon anything else but this divine operation, and then be as full of religious zeal as you will. You have forsaken the fountain of living water." collect, divide, distinguish, and new-model all doctrines, notions, and opinions as nicely as ever you can, you are only making a new-fashioned, cracked cistern that can hold no living water in it. What is the reason that sin and wickedness overflow like a flood the whole Christian world? It is because popish and Protestant churches have been, age after age, wholly taken up in hewing out of the gospel rock their several opinion cisterns. The Pope has his infallibility, and therefore his cisterns can have no failure or crack in them. Protestants have a Luther, a Calvin, an Arminius, a Beza, a Socinus, a Zinzendorf, etc., and if their cisterns are free from cracks, it is because they have nouns and pronouns, verbs and adverbs, prepositions and conjunctions to cement and strengthen them. What infallibility does in Popish, that criticism does in Protestant countries, and so, sad truth, the one fountain of living water is everywhere forsaken, and quite out of date. What wonder, then, if Christianity is but an empty name, a vain battle of opinions, instead of the life and power of God, born, dwelling, and manifested in our fallen nature? And here let me tell you, that all you see or hear or read of the best notions, truths, or doctrines, whilst you place anything in them, as considered in themselves, are to you only broken cisterns that afford no water of life. Eugenius said one day how charmed he was at first with the doctrines of the spiritual life, and the glories of a new birth, but that now, after some years striving to be good by the knowledge of such things, he found himself to be but just where he was, before he knew anything of them. But did any one ever tell Eugenius that these doctrines were the fountain of living water, and that by drinking of them he would have eternal life? How good are these words of Christ! Unless a man be born again from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But how useless are they to him, who is not thereby turned to seek and expect it all from God! How good is it to know that abyss of death into which our father Adam has plunged us! But how unprofitable is this knowledge, unless it makes us all hunger and thirst after that essential operation of the divine nature in us, which lived in Adam before he fell! All scripture doctrines, whether of life or death, are nothing in themselves, nor have any power of godliness in them, but are only to show us, again and again, this great truth, that the departure from God, into whatever it be, is the death of deaths, and the cleaving wholly and solely to God, is eternal life. 
think of anything but God as the cause of goodness, or that his goodness can be your good, but by being born in you, as it was in Adam and holy angels. And then, though you have all the three Christian creeds, you have turned your Christian God into an outward idol. For a God not living and working within you all that is or can be called your good life is but an outward idol of a God. And be assured of this, that as is the birth and working life within you, so are you, and can neither here nor hereafter be anything else but that which is born within you. Righteousness imputed from without is but like such imputed wickedness. And you may as well frighten yourself with fearing that the devil's wickedness should be outwardly imputed to you, as to think of having any righteousness of Christ, but that which of him and by him is born in you. But to return to Eugenius, let it be supposed that, having found himself not sanctified by his former notions, that he had recourse to others quite contrary to them, as faith without works, Christ's righteousness not as a new birth in us, but only outwardly imputed to us, the number of saved and damned to all eternity neither greater than less than God's absolute decrees had made it. Suppose him now so charmed with the sweet sound of these doctrines, to be under such a sense of their saving power, as to be forced to come forth as a preacher of eternal death and damnation to all that would not seek to be saved by them. Could Eugenius possibly give further proof that he had forgotten and forsaken the one fountain of living water, and was calling the Christian world to a rotten cistern instead of it? This kind of reasoning comes too late. God has already set his seal to the truth and goodness of our friend's preaching. Thousands from far and near flock about him. Sighs, groans, swoonings, screamings of young and old proclaim the two-edged sword that is in his mouth. If you will not allow this to be proof enough, it is in vain to talk any further with you. All of this is so far from being proof enough of the truth and goodness of his doctrine that it is not proof at all. If it will do for him, it will do for Mohammed, and every successful deceiver. Zinzendorf has plenty of this proof. Not only these kingdoms, but great parts of Europe and America bear witness to it. And yet of these Moravians, carrying conviction wherever they go, and gaining such awakened converts out of every part of the Reformation, as are ready to sell lands and houses, and lay the price at the feet of these, your friend says, he bears a preaching testimony against their corrupt principles and practices, and might as well be called a murderer as a Moravian. What becomes now of your success, as being God's seal set to the truth of your doctrine? If Rome was allowed to send her preaching missionaries amongst us, to attack with full liberty of speech every Protestant form of religion, to travel from place to place daily telling all the men and women they could get together on hills, in churchyards, or elsewhere, that dreadful soul-destroying doctrines had been constantly preached to them ever since the Reformation, that they had lost interest in Christ since they left the Pope, that church and sects, however setting themselves above one another, were all equally in a certain state of damnation, and must be so till they had true priests and true sacraments, nowhere to be had but in the one ancient, infallible Mother Church of Rome. If, I should say, that damnation thus thundered out to awaken people from their Reformation dream of safety, would soon have converts ten times more numerous, and much greater crowds of various followers than you have yet to boat of, who could have any show of reason to deny it. Poor man! Can you not see the miserable and wretched state of Christendom? that heathen wickedness reigns everywhere, that nothing of Christianity is left amongst us but an outward profession, destitute of any goodness but that of words and doctrines. 
How then ought you to rejoice that the mercy of God has here and there raised up awakened preachers to shake the hardened hearts of such apostate Christians? Who that has any spark of goodness in him would endeavour to stop their course? Whoever would, I am sure I would not. I wish from my heart that not only every parish but every house had such a divine preacher in it. Nay, though some should preach Christ out of envy and others through strife, yet I would rejoice if such contentious preachers did but preach the truth as it is in Jesus. But now supposing, as is but too true, that we have only the words and doctrines, but not the spirit of Christianity, they are in the state of those that never had it, and must be called to that same change in life as they were before they can be Christians in spirit and truth. The gospel thus began, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom was God's free gift. His own love was the sole cause of it, but it was only given to repentance because nothing else could possibly receive it. This repent, in order to the kingdom of God, was the only preaching which Christ set on foot, and sent into every city and village. But what do your preachers now say? Do they call the present unchristian world, as Christ ordered the unchristian world to be called to the kingdom of God? Do they say to Christians become workers of iniquity, that have long resisted God's Holy Spirit, long abused all gospel blessings, trampled all its pearls under their feet, and ever since their baptism been wallowing in the mire of their sensual lusts, do they cry aloud to these miserable sinners, Repent and bring forth works meet for repentance, or it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah at the day of judgment than for you? So far from this, that they teach and affirm with vehemence to all these sinners that no repentance, no qualification, no requisite, no preparation is necessary to put them in full possession of Christ and all his riches, and all for this absurd reason, because righteousness, that is, the means of righteousness, is the free gift of God, and was not procured or obtained by any works of men. Therefore salvation can require no works of men. Who can be blinder than he who sees not the difference between a Saviour prepared and given, and that salvation which is to be from him? Or who can more confound the most distinct things than he who affirms that of salvation, which is only true of the Saviour alone? It is true of the Saviour to say that he is freely given of God to be the Saviour of all men, but it is not true to say of salvation that it is freely given to all men. The works of man do no more towards making Christ to be the all-sufficient Saviour of the world than towards making him to be God and man. But to have salvation from this free-given perfect Saviour, all is requisite, all is to be worked, laboured, and done, which he commands us to have, and do, and be. Therefore saith St. Paul of this perfect Saviour, that he is the author of salvation to all that obey him. Here you see what an error it is to speak of Saviour and salvation as one and the same thing, equally free and independent on man's works. The perfect, all-sufficient Saviour is the free gift of God, that all men might be saved. But salvation is no free gift, but stands in the utmost contrariety to it. It is to be purchased. A Saviour you cannot, you need not buy. He is already given you, without price and without money. But all the salvation that you can have must be bought of this Saviour. There is nothing gratis here, but what are you to give for it? All that you have from fallen Adam. All that the world, the flesh, and the devil have treasured up in you. Nay, houses, lands, fathers, mothers, brethren, etc., are all to be forsaken. They must all of them lose that place and power that they had in you, or you have no salvation, though you never wanted a free-given Saviour.
think of coming to Christ without these requisites, these qualifications, these preparation works, and then you will be just as welcome as the prodigal son would have been, had he come to his heavenly father with his harlots in his arms, that he and they might have rings and the best robes put on them, without their giving or doing anything for them. What now is the parable of all that penitence of the prodigal, his renunciation of himself, his forsaking of his way of life, his sense of his great unworthiness to have his first sonship, his begging to be admitted to the labor and obedience of a hired servant, what is all this for but to tell every son of fallen Adam that he is this very prodigal, this keeper of harlots, living with and like swine in a strange country, till he thinks of going to Christ with all those qualifications, preparations, and changes of life and manners with which the prodigal son went to his father? May it not now be justly said with St. Paul, Who hath bewitched you, you foolish preachers, to come forth with zeal and vehemence against qualifications, preparations, and requisites, to fit us for the grace and favor of Christ? Did the heavenly Father send the ring and the best robe to his wicked son, whilst he was content with the harlots, his husks, and his swine? Was his eye of goodness turned toward him, till he saw him upon the road, a sorrowful seeker of his father, with penitential works and a full change of life? Now if Christ in his parable hath set forth a sinner come to his right senses, how can you more show that you have lost yours than by cautioning sinners against qualifications, penitential requisites, and preparations to be received by Christ? What is the whole gospel but one continual doctrine of all that is to be done, denied, renounced, and suffered, in order to have any interest in God's free gift of Christ as a Saviour of the world? Hear what the Saviour, who came to save all men, saith to those who forgot, that repentance and good works were the qualifications and requisites to have any share of salvation. I know ye not, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity." Is this a Saviour that calls for no salvation works, but will himself be our whole Saviour or none at all? Had Christ begun his gospel with saying, I am come to save you all without putting you to any pains or labour to be saved, I bring no terms with me nor have any demands upon you, I look for no requisites, no preparatory, no repentance and self-denying works, I and all my riches are freely yours, inward, inborn goodness cannot belong to you, but you shall be the children of God, not because you are led by the Spirit of God, but because my righteousness shall be outwardly imputed to you. Had this been the gospel of Christ, your preachers of no requisites, no qualifications to have interest in Christ, might well be received as faithful apostles. You all complain that Christianity is become a mere outward profession, without the inward spirit of the gospel. This just and true complaint, how vain is it in your mouths! For how can your Christianity, in its best state, be anything else but bare outward profession, if Christians neither have nor can have any righteousness but that which is outwardly imputed to them? Can you complain or accuse them of not being inwardly of the spirit and life of the gospel, if gospel goodness cannot be a birth within them, but only the goodness of another, that is, to be accounted as theirs? Either therefore give up your outwardly imputed righteousness, or complain no more that Christians are mere formalists, for both you and all your preachers, however awakened, can only be formalists yourselves, and can awaken nothing but formality in others, unless the righteous spirit of Christ hath its fullness of a birth in the inmost spirit, both of preachers and of hearers. St. Paul saith, Circumcision is not that which is outward, but of the heart. 
Is it not as necessary to say of righteousness that it cannot be an outwardly imputed thing, but must be the righteousness of the heart? Had Paul told them that the circumcision of the heart could only be outwardly imputed to the circumcisers of the flesh, he had preached the law as you do the gospel. Again, he is not a Jew, saith he, that is one outwardly. How unlike is this to your doctrine, which will not allow the Christian to be one inwardly, but solely by that which is outwardly imputed to him? Again, the Spirit, saith he, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But how could this be but because the Spirit that is within us is a birth of the Holy Spirit whose witness agreeth with it? For suppose, no birth of the Spirit within us, and then we have only that natural old man that knoweth not the things of the Spirit, because they are foolishness to him. Let me, before we part, only ask you these two questions. Would you be glad to see Christianity continued in its present poor, blind, and apostate state from the truth and life of the gospel? Or can you show me how it can return to its first purity and perfection of godliness, unless preachers go forth in such a spirit of zeal, calling the world to Christ as ours do? Take this for a full answer to every question of this kind. There are but two spirits that govern every rational and intelligent life. The one is the Spirit of God. The other is the Spirit that is fallen from God, and works contrary to Him. Nothing is good in any creature but because the good Spirit of God is the doer of it. Nothing is evil but that which is done by the Spirit of the creature fallen off from God, and working in self-will. Here you have the infallible touchstone for the trial of all spirits, which can never deceive you. Every spirit that calls you to be delivered from anything but the evil that is in your own spirit, or turns you to anything as a deliverance from it, but to the spirit and power of God within you, is not of God, but is an agent under that spirit that is fallen off from God. The Christian religion has no ground or foundation, but because the spirit of man has lost its first state of union with God, and is unable of itself to recover it. Hence it is that Christ, God and man united, is the one only possible restorer of man's first union with God. Therefore, the whole of our redemption consists in our being made one with Christ, essentially born of Him, that having His whole redeeming nature come to life in us, we may be in Him as He is in God, one spirit, one life, to all eternity." God was in Christ Jesus, saith Paul, reconciling the world to himself. But Christ was the reconciler between God and man, only and solely by that which he was, did, suffered, and obtained by and through his whole process. This is his mediation work. Are you in this process? You are in the arms of your mediator. His mediation work is like a new creation within you, and what God saw in his beloved Son, that he sees in you. And you must belong to God as He does, because His nature, life, and spirit are in you. Therefore, is any one reconciled to God? It is because Christ is born in Him. But the seed of Christ, which is in every son of Adam, never comes to the fullness of the birth of the new creature, but through the process of Christ. This is the one straight gate and narrow way, out of which there is nothing but sin, death, and hell to every man. Without Christ, we are without God. But who is without Christ is told you in the following words, Unless a man deny himself, take up his cross, etc., and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. This is the one term of union with Christ. 
Suppose now a preacher comes to you from Rome with his invented doctrines about saints, image, sacraments, transubstantiations, etc., threatening certain damnation to all that do not receive them. Suppose another coming from Geneva, as full of damnation for all those who will not receive his invented doctrines of saving faith without works, of the righteousness of Christ not inwardly born, but only outwardly imputed to you, of a salvation and damnation, equally the one sole work or gift of God, neither of which you can any more help or hinder than you can help or hinder the duration of the world, or add one cubit to your stature. What gospel eyes must he have who did not see as many marks of the beast, the whore, and the false prophet in one of these preachers as in the other? Or can you think, if St. Paul was again in the world, he would give a heartier God-speed to the one than to the other? Had the apostle been a preacher of your imputation doctrine, he never would have said, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, as knowing that this was the very fellowship which Christ had with the sons of fallen Adam, his righteousness being only outwardly imputed to their unrighteousness. And how could he have cried out, as of an impossible thing, What communion hath light with darkness, or what concord hath Christ with Belial? For, had your imputation doctrine been his, he would have known that if light was but outwardly imputed to darkness, then the darkness would be in communion with light, and if Christ's righteousness was but outwardly imputed to the sons of Belial, then there would be concord between Christ and Belial. This is the blasphemous absurdity of your imputation doctrine. For unless the whole fallen nature of man be born again from above, the righteousness of Christ, outwardly imputed to it, is but like the same imputed to the unchanged sons of Belial. Without me, saith Christ, ye can do nothing. That is, all is in vain without my process, for Christ is that which his process is. St. Paul saith, No one can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In these two short texts you have the whole nature and substance of Christian redemption, namely, that it all consists in the process of Christ, and the coming of the Holy Ghost. Christ's process in the flesh is the only way of dying to all that fleshly evil that Adam brought to life in us. Christ came in the Spirit, is the only one quickening of that divine life to which Adam died. Trust to anything else, seek to anything else but this process of Christ, and this power of the Holy Ghost, and then all your leaning upon the gospel will be no better than leaning on a broken reed. These two fundamental truths plainly show why the first preaching of the gospel began, and must ever go on, saying nothing but what is implied in these words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand repent, shows the necessity of making Christ's process the one way to the kingdom of God, for repentance works are in his process, and nowhere else. For the kingdom of God is at hand, shows that Christ's coming in the Spirit is the one thing sought for by his process. For the kingdom of God come amongst men is nothing else but Christ come in the power of the Spirit. And where this power is not come in the likeness of a kingdom, wherever plenty there may be of preachers, the kingdom of God is yet afar off. The law ended with Christ come in the flesh. His process was the fulfilling of all its types, figures, and sacrifices. The coming of Christ in the Spirit is just the same one only fulfilling of all the gospel dispensation. And as the law would have been all in vain without Christ's coming in the flesh, so would the gospel also without Christ's coming in the Spirit. And the Jew, with his Old Testament, rejecting Christ come in the flesh, is just as true to the law as the Christian is to the gospel, who does not own Christ as come in the Spirit, to be the only one fulfilling of all its doctrine. 
for as all the types, figures, and sacrifices of the law were in themselves but empty shadows, without Christ being the life of them, so all things written in the gospel are but dead letters, till Christ, coming in the Spirit, quickens a new creature to be the reader, the rememberer, and the doer of them. Therefore, where the Holy Spirit is not sought after, trusted to, and rested in, as the end, the substance, and living power of the whole gospel, it is no marvel that Christians, high or low, learned or unlearned, churchmen or dissenter, should have no more of gospel virtues than the Jews have of patriarchal holiness, or that the same lusts, vices, and worldly craft which prosper among apostate Jews should break forth with much strength in a fallen Christendom. See here, then, your work, ye awakened preachers. If God has sent you forth, you can have no other end but that on which Christ sent his apostles. Do you preach anything but the process of Christ as the way to the kingdom of God, or call men to any power of walking in it but that of the Holy Spirit? You are strangers to, or deserters from, the truth, as it is in Jesus, for neither Christ nor his apostles ever taught anything but this. The old man must die, or the new man can never be made alive in Christ. But nothing brings death upon the old man but that one self-denying process of Christ. Nothing gives life to the new man but the one Spirit of Christ born in it. This is the gospel language from the beginning to the end. With this language in your mouths, the whole gospel is with you. You may cry aloud and spare not. Be as zealous here as you will or can. Go out into the streets and lanes, the highways and hedges. Compel hypocrites, sensualists, worldlings, and hardened sinners to tremble at their ways, to dread everything that is contrary to Christ's salvation process. Preach certain damnation to every sinful lust of the flesh, and no possible power to be delivered from it, but by Christ coming in the Spirit to set up his own kingdom of God within you. And then everyone who has the least spark of goodness living in his soul will call you sent of God, will wish prosperity to all your labors of love, and no one will be against you but he that is not with Christ." But if you come forth with the new-fangled, ungospel doctrines of a Calvin, a Zinzendorf, etc., be your zeal as great as it will, it only unites you with the brick-and-mortar builders of that anti-Christian Babel, which the Prince of the Power of the Air has set up in full opposition to that rock on which Christ has built his one Catholic universal salvation church. And now, my dear friend, wishing you from the bottom of my heart all that blessing which Christ bestowed upon his apostles when he said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. I bid you farewell. End of A Dialogue Between a Methodist and a Churchman